it's hilarious, but like, rules are important. I'm recording now, so anyway. It's good, sexy though. Thank you. <laughs> rules are very important. They give you a guideline. Welcome to another podcast, surprisingly, uh, of Kaku with Dillian. Starting to become more consistent. I have two amazing women that are doing amazing stuff. Uh, I don't like to name names, so they name, they name their own names. And in surname, government names and nicknames are, are welcome. Uh, we are in in Hyde Park, Moneyland, uh, in a, a restaurant that looks like I don't know something out of a Wes Anderson movie or something like that. Uh, <laughs> it's a great library. Look. I'm trying to be fancy. I That's want it for my library space. Is that going to not put me in the fancy world? So yeah. Yeah. So, hi guys, how are you doing? Good, thanks, Dylan. How are yeah. you? Doing good. Doing Please good. introduce yourselves to the people, the masses that actually listen to this podcast, the 10 people that listen to this podcast. <laughs> Hello, 10 people. I am Busabuntu. I'm a disruptive media entrepreneur. I own a company called Busabuntu Pictures, a foundation called the Busabuntu Foundation, and they're all under my group, the Ombonisi Group. Um, I am Sheetal Megan and I'm a filmmaker and unintentionally a provocateur at times, which I'm <laughs> testing out. Um, and I own a production company called Atman Media and it's an like, indie focused film company. That's amazing. So two women doing film. Mm-hmm. What yeah. is the film landscape like right now for you guys? You know, there's a lot of promise, I think, of change and access for yeah. women but the hard realities are still the hard realities man. I think also Sheetal and I have a very different perspective because mm. uh, Sheetal's had a very different journey in film um, and I think that might be interesting to share with yeah. like other women how in what, terms what of how it's affected us because I think that you're right there is promise but like systematically is there a lot of shift we're not so sure of that mm. so um, do you want me to start with mine? Yeah, or do start I? with your journey. Okay, yeah. so um, I, like Sheeta, we both studied at AFTA. We were in different years, and I graduated in 2006. And then I was fortunate enough to get a low-budget TV show as a presenter. So I graduated with live performance. And it was really educational. It was really interesting to see how low-budget television for ETV worked. Um, but I just knew it wasn't me. I, mean, I started sensing I was more into independent culture and I spent about two years going to random um, ad auditions and the casting process really just broke my spirit. I was just like, this is not, I felt like I wasn't having a conversation with people and I'm a super geek. I want to feel like I'm in a space that makes me always feel like I'm learning. And then there was a seminal moment, I think it was 2008, I did an HBO BBC show called The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. That's cool. Yeah, and it starred Jill Scott. Yeah. And uh, it had Weinstein money. So (laughs) (laughs) we all got trapped in the Weinstein bubble somehow. Um, But we I mean, if Weinstein gets to Jill Scott, it's just. I mean, he reached us in Botswana, (laughs) this man. (laughs) Um, He didn't come on set, though, thankfully. Um, So we were filming in Botswana, and it was. I was a featured role. I mean, all my scenes were with Jill Scott, but I didn't have a lot of dialogue in terms of I wasn't recurring. I was in that one episode, and I had my own trailer, and I was treated with babe. I was like, what's happening? (laughs) But it was the level of professionalism, and the level of care even if it was false there was just this sense of you are valued here for your skills and so we will treat you that way and it just shifted my whole perspective and i was like right i need to learn more 
I left after I didn't feel like the barriers that existed across the media space were things I could change. So then I went to Paris and I studied uh, at a school called L'Ecole Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq and it teaches you about the language of gesture. People would call us mimes, but we know that we understand the language of gesture. Um, and I just didn't like Paris so much, so I didn't stay for my second year. I then went to go do my master's in England, which is uh, an MA in arts, uh, filmmaking and the creative economy. And that's where I learned how to actually be an entrepreneur in the creative industries because you run a company for a year in the degree and they teach you how to literally create a product put it into the market space and go through that process of business behavior yeah. um, and it was incredible the university then sponsored me for two years to run and test Busabuntu pictures in London wow. it was phenomenal and I just made some short films I made a short film called Izulu, which we took to Cannes for exhibition in the short film corner. And I felt very much in power of my journey in control, but also very much broke. You know, yeah. I lived in London and <laughs> it's an expensive city. And so I had about four jobs at one go. I worked in retail, I worked yeah. in everything that I could work in to be able to put that money into paying my rent, which is my largest overhead, and doing stuff and learning how to make this business work. And now I've come back home with that knowledge. I work with the Film and Publication Board of South Africa and understand better how to regulate content now, which has also been an invaluable education. And I'm just, you know, back home trying to see how I can build a, a production company, a disruptive media company, because we don't only do film, we create for live performance too. Um, that education I have in Paris for me is really much about how do you put bodies in the space and have them respond and create a language that's very much in line with my activist nature, you know, like our bodies are activists in themselves, so um, that's a huge part of the company too. Um, and yeah, just learning. I'm all about learning and trying to see how these systems can be a partner to a disruptor. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I was long-winded. <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, I definitely take refuge in Busabuntu for any entrepreneurial fund. As an artist or as a filmmaker, you're not geared to think business and eventually you realize that you have to. So it's kind of been a good kinship to find. Yeah. But I found that I kind of fell into film quite unintentionally. Um, just feeling that in terms of South Africa and where the kind of post-apartheid space was going, that, that it, was, it was a really liberal space, it was an invitation for people who were thinking people, and then finding that filmmaking in itself has a, is a kind of philosophical quest, and I realized that I had that and that I wanted to kind of pursue it. But so I studied at AFTA for four years and then went out into the industry and you realize that the industry is not really very concerned with your philosophical quest, particularly as a woman. Um, and it's not geared for our stories or our visions of entrepreneurship. And I found that that definitely has changed in the past five or six years. I think that there is a certain urgency about women stories becoming important and understanding that they have actual cultural and capitalist value and so it does feel like we're in the middle of you know yes it's all me too but it's also feeling like okay women are breaking through we're kind of getting into festivals and there's a part of me that 
feels a bit excited and euphoric about that and I've been able to benefit from that and, and, and make films where I can travel through to festivals and feel like I can cultivate ideas and, and sit down with stakeholders and, and, and own those ideas. Yeah. But by the same token, I feel like the DNA of this industry is, is really masculine. It's very, um, you know, it's capitalist, but Jane Campion talks about it quite a bit, being a capitalism is a macho force. and. Yeah. As much as we're euphoric, we also know that there's a lot of pain that's going to come yeah. with reshaping this industry yep. and getting our ideas made so that women coming up behind us have, you know, it, easier. have it have it easier. So it's 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 not it's kind of like a mixed feeling of I'm excited to work. I also know that the next ten years of my life are probably going to be quite painful. Mm. Yeah, that's um, So at the moment, I mean, I'm working on a TV series that's uh, about the South African occult unit. Uh, about the South African occult okay. unit, detective unit, um, and it's a bit of a satire about small town South Africa and colonial legacy and racism and yeah. othering and fear and and then two other forms. One's a sci-fi about um, the Arab Spring. It's a kind of a dystopian take on. It's like a 1984 take on what happens if the Arab world really does not confront autocracy and and then a very personal form that's kind of a love story about mental illness um, yeah I mean I'm, so, I'm interested in film but I've never made a film I've always tried to make films and mm. stuff are mm -hmm. uh, and, and the films that the ideas I currently have I, I tried working with Vincent he's been coaching me to, tr to try to learn to write my ideas and all this stuff are uh, when you say Vincent I don't know if you guys know him, Dicho Vincho, the show. Oh, tall, slender man. He's not no? tall, he's short. Not the actor. Mm. No. I'm thinking of the actor from Dicho uh. I don't, see, I think my absence from him, I've only yeah. been back home for two and a half years, and I feel the five years I was gone, yeah, a lot of people came up, mm. and I've, I'm now in their app. <laughs> I've, I've come in in their app. <laughs> people are like, how do you not know so and so? And I'm sure I know them by face, yeah. but I don't know the work related to them yeah. yet. So I feel I'm paying a lot of catch up in terms of how um, artists have come up in the industry, mm, male or female. Yeah. And, and in a way, I kind of like not knowing because I would rather have a perception of somebody through work. Yes. You know, I'd rather have worked with you or gone through a stage of knowledge sharing, like studying yeah. with you. Um, because I think for me that's what I value in other artists is the capacity to collaborate, the capacity to learn from each other um, and sometimes you know that when somebody is a part of a production, particularly if it's a broadcast production, that may not be how they want to express themselves. Yes, it might true. not actually be how this artist wants to be seen as an artist, an but artist. they're in a position where they can make an income and they support the story and are a part of it. but maybe there's no real passion so yeah. I, I always prefer to meet an artist on an artist's terms, terms. you should check out the movies like I don't know if it's out yet are it's scars of our people it's about the Namibian genocide and it's an interesting film that you I've heard good things about yeah that. so you worked on that that's okay. like one of his passion projects and stuff okay uh, so I've been nice. working with him to try and figure out how to get my voice out there and, and the biggest challenge has always been like the, the ideas seem like, I don't know, the, the rest of the world would get them. So, mm. the current show I'm trying to work on, it's, it's, uh, it's called Youth 89, it was born in 89. Mm. But it's about tracking this guy's journey uh, as a young entrepreneur in Cape Town, trying to make this ridiculous idea of his happen. But it's about around the people around him that are important, how they shape his life and relationships he has and all of that. Because currently we're not getting enough, enough content that actually is 
relatable for some of us. Yes, it's, it's relatable yeah, yes to the 100%. broader in to the broader world, I guess to the broader South African context, but it's like yes. I'm looking for that you know as Zanzari is problematic in his issues and all this stuff, but I, I love yeah. Master of None and mm. the simplicity of the journey of trying to make something out of it and, and the, the, the identity crisis and the whole growing up crisis, adulting, one on one kind of things like yeah. having kids, having our kids. That's kind of shows I'm trying to figure out how to make. Okay. Uh, with your guys' take on the current storytelling campus, Esquire campus, I guess what's happening right now in terms of public TV, but also indie. How do you how do you feel about that? Like in terms of the stories, are they related, very relatable, or you feel like they're too? I, I think the culture is 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 maturing and it has a lot of catching up to yeah. do. I think apartheid's done a lot of damage to mm. film culture and to, to television. Culture for yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, healthy film culture is. A response mm. and, and and people like what you're describing about what you want to speak about in Cape Town is you know it's a response to life it's a response yeah. to society and we're kind of slowly getting there but I find that in television at the moment even though it's like a golden era for television globally the local thinking is it's very it's, it's like selling local. oil to people yeah. you know yeah. it's, it's LSM driven it's <laughs> not ideas driven yeah. yeah and you're like why yeah um, and I think the thing is the people who have the capacity to actually be risk takers are the only um, I don't want to say brand names but the only subscription uh, brand yeah. that we have there because they have the capacity to become like an HBO I mean I'm just saying DSTV because they're the only one <laughs> but DSTV is the one who should be taking the risk because they're a private entity yeah SABC has so much that they can't do because they just want to legislation they are a state entity like BBC, you know, they, they, they are so many places that they can go, you know, and what they need, I think, because I also feel people need to just bring in and reel in their expectations for the national broadcaster, because the reality is it's always going to be the national broadcaster. What we need from it is for it to start looking the way we film it. If I'm filming on an HD camera and then I go look and it's an analog image, <laughs> it hurts my soul. <laughs> um, and I'm just like, it's 2018. But in truth, I think the failure, maybe the one good thing about the corruption um, narrative that has been happening for the past 10 years in our country is that it played a role in that digital migration thing that was supposed to happen. And I think it saved us a lot of money, that corruption as such, because it would be null and void by now. Because the digital space is now platform driven, it's stream driven. So if SABC had spent all that money putting in systems across our country for a digital migration to just stop looking like analog, they would have wasted a lot of money. Because now, with the way the internet works, all they need is to create like BBC iPlayer for themselves and SABC iPlayer where you now go online and you look at SABC online and you see the images the way that they were filmed versus yeah. how you see it on your TV. So I think it's given the institution an opportunity to be like, okay, I'm not supporting corruption in this statement. I'm merely saying that if there was a silver lining in all of that poor behavior is that our national broadcaster was saved a lot of money that it can now hopefully look at into putting into supporting young people who are, who can work within their mandate. So I think for me, one of the things, just before I forget, I really think it would be useful for anyone listening to this to hear about your experience with the public sector and like funding applications and stuff because yeah. I'm not very good at that stuff. Um, and I think that a lot of women and a lot of um, up-and-coming filmmakers, especially of 
you know, brown people, ethnicity would appreciate that kind of knowledge because it, it's kind of, it's knowing the rules. Yeah. It's knowing how to fill in that application, the things that you have to say. Where to even apply in the first exactly, place. Exactly, and yeah. how, who to speak to when you need help because we're very much about knowledge sharing yeah. and I think that's something she took it really yeah. give as empowering to other people yeah. whereas I can help you with disruption. <laughs> but um, I, I, I digressed there, I can't remember what yeah. the question was. But My question <laughs> is, like, I mean, you mentioned something interesting there about like the lack of digital migration I was pretty excited about that like our because like you mentioned like I think it'd be nice to see the, the way things were shot yep <laughs> I uh, shot on a cannon this does not look like a cannon outcome <laughs> you know? and it's interesting like I'm, I don't think SABC would even be bothered to even invest in an iPlayer I, I, I feel like our I don't in, know. In terms, because like of the way they work I think unless there's some political buzz around it so, so was it really, I don't know what your perception of it and stuff. I think that in South Africa people really need to catch up. Yeah. Like, I feel like when you go to India or you go to other parts of Southeast Asia, mm. like like digital on the internet is, is probably the most democratic way of consuming media. Yeah. And in South Africa, you know, it's, it's a problem we have with all industry, particularly in the creative industry in South Africa. It's like this top dog. Yep. People don't want to break the top dog mentality. Yeah. There were too many people at the top making too much money from... And I think you guys are also missing like the real problem. It's actually broadband. Yeah. Because yeah, if broadband even if SABC be... did shift over as a yeah. state mm -hmm. entity into a digital space, the reason we're not in line with Asian spaces like India, like China, mm. is because we're still dealing with like two providers who provide broadband and then they give it to mm. telecoms mm. who still like charges more than they yeah. would in Nigeria. So I that's the real problem when it comes wow. to like how are we as audiences going to be able to consume content in that manner. And that's why I was like, I don't think it's government that doesn't have an appetite for it. I think they have had... So DSTV basically benefits from the 100%. Lack of, oh, okay. 100%. 100%. That monopoly culture. <laughs> yeah, and dogs. the thing is they are the only current yeah. subscription platform across Africa. That looks like what you shot, basically. Exactly. <laughs> and we'll throw so much money at you, which is helpful when you get in there. But getting in there is so hard. It's so hard. And um, I think I, I look forward to the day where thinkers like Sheetal and myself are in those spaces because I think both for the public provider, SABC, and for DSTV, there's much that can still be learned from them. Um, but there's also much disruption that must come from, must them. Come from them. And by from them, I mean like we as up and coming, where we have the capacity to, must disrupt them, must create more access for new people mm. to come in and mm. make, the, make the same loud noise we made for fees must fall, for data must really fall. Mm. And you know, uh, I like that the South African community is still calling that out because it, they're playing games with us. Mm. How can our telecoms company MTN charge less for broadband in Nigeria. Yeah. It's because when they got to Nigeria, Nigeria's like, shame, you're the new kid on the block here. We've they had independence rules, yeah. for 50 years, so you need to come down. Yeah. And they had to because they knew the market was worth it. But with us, they're like, <laughs> you your the options are limited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's interesting because I remember when Showmax was launched in South Africa, I was pretty excited. I'm like, damn, okay, things are about to change and stuff. And then they partnered up with DSTV and I was like, oh, okay. It's not so much a partner up, they were a DSTV subsidiary from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, what were they? I didn't know that. I thought, I thought it was more like someone came up with an idea and then merged it with our DSTV and stuff. And that's interesting to watch because I, I really thought maybe they were commissioning more more content like ne like what Netflix is doing because some of my favorite yeah. shows by Netflix are not necessarily American or European, like British. They are, they are like the more 
like like European films, like on, on, on independent stuff, stuff. Independent stuff mm. that's on Netflix, that's interesting, like detective shows and all that stuff that you never would have watched anywhere else. But but through Netflix, you're able to kind of see the world in a different yes, yeah. lens. And at Showmax, mm. I think, kind of lost that. And it's funny, DSTV going to the cast of broadcasting and complaining, making their complaint about how Netflix is playing, is playing what unfair. I think that mm. there was a whole thing mm. about it. What do you guys thought on that? Like, uh, like you're saying disruption, do you think that there's a need then for someone, one of us, to create our own digital platform? Yeah, so that's is there funny. space for that? Yeah, I, I think we've been testing yeah. it with someone to pictures for three years now, how to create a digital platform, a streaming yeah. platform, because it is, and I was saying this to Sheetal yesterday, I was like, we are in the era of being pioneers. Yes. We just need an investor who's going to understand us and invest in our concept. Yeah. And that's hard. And truthfully, I've had to learn the hard way that maybe I need to look outside of the African continent for an investor um, where I have main ownership, but like yeah. who's just going to understand the benefits of creating a digital streaming platform in Africa with an African perspective. Yeah, I mean, I also think sort of satellite streaming is like really outdated. But, yeah. But you know, Netflix is kind of. I think it's it's a good primer for a market like Africa just to, to sort of get us into the streaming mm. yep. culture. Teach them what it's about. But like in the Arab world, in so many parts of you know what African audiences want to see and what Netflix is going to buy and commission are not going to and be not the, same. the same thing. Exactly. Definitely. So eventually, yeah. yeah. there will be an African streaming. And Quest try. What do you guys think about Quest? But it's still satellite, yeah. also at the same time, but with some digital. I think the thing is the East is leading a lot when it comes to digital uh, progression and streaming. Mm. When you go to Kenya and you speak to Ghanaians, they're yeah. just different dialogues when it comes around it. And it's truthfully because the broadband conversation for them is moving, it's progressive. Yeah. They mm. don't have such monopoly strongholds in their country. Yeah. And so there's been investors who've invested in new ideas because they understand that this is not the future, it's the current. But it's funny because Zimbabwe is doing better at this than we are. It's that's it's, a funny thing. Like yeah, it's not funny it's to not me funny at all. all. Yeah, because no, it's not funny. <laughs> it's not, and it's not surprising. That's exactly. what I mean. Is that um, Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, for all his faults, kicked out monopoly behavior when he got in there. He was like, I'm going to do it violently. We say and this while sitting in the heart of monopoly capital. <laughs> Hyde Park. No, but you have to look at the behaviors. And I'm not condoning in any way how things happened in yeah. Zimbabwe, but what certainly happened was a cutting off of monopoly behavior. Because South Africa transitioned peacefully, um, and a lot of things we were sold out on, and we're now realizing 25 years how much of us was still given away in those treaties and those yeah. sunset clauses. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that Zimbabwe is already more progressive. Yeah. They don't have as many rich barriers. Like you're talking yeah. about someone who can throw a billion rand to shut your business down. I know. It's and that's petty that's cash in their world. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I don't think that that culture exists in places like Zimbabwe and Kenya and Ghana. And if it does, it's overpopulated by a more democratic, yeah. entrepreneurial nature. Yeah, it exists in Zimbabwe, but I think at a, at a different angle. I think uh, I, I, what Strive did with uh, Quest, actually, it's funny how he is making a mess for DSTV in Zimbabwe. That like, was starting to like for him to get the, like the NBA to such to get mm. onto kind of kill DSTV. Uh, and also like his appreciation of local content and stuff. I don't know how they do it now, uh, in, in, like in terms of on the continent. But mm. from what I've heard so far, and also like I mean, he owns yeah. the one of the, 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 the banks and, and telecom providers. Oh, so, so that helps. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I owned you, you a know? bank and a telecom. That's it. Yeah, That's so, it. so that kind Having of connection, the capacity and stuff, you can control the market yes. easier than. So and then also I want to ask something about around uh, 
what is it? I think I'm very forgetful sometimes. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> it's okay. uh, oh yeah, about youth. You so you mentioned something about like uh, being sold out right now. Youth month. Then yes, it's tomorrow is June sixteen. Yeah. Uh, that's always funny to watch for it. me because I'm like, okay, wait, what is actually supposed to happen? Like, mm. I, I never really. I, I always feel like the country always gets sold out. The young people get sold out on this day more than any other day because mm. now they're shown as think pieces for the first time. But then throughout the whole year, young people, you don't, you don't see them much on TV. But mm. all of a sudden, now you're seeing young people on every single TV show for mm. this month and stuff. What do you guys think is young people in South Africa? I'm, not, I'm, I'm young, but I'm not South African, so it's always like a. I'm, like, I'm, I'm South African, but I might not be young anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you're not over 35, so statistically, you, you're, you're still, still young. fine, according to this government and stuff. <laughs> so what do you guys view? What I do you guys always wear my blazer on June 16 because I grew up in a bigger conscious household. Wow. And that day is very important to me and my family. We yeah. know what it means to us as young people um, in terms of what those kids' lives mean to us and yeah. what they lost for us to have today. So it's a very important day to me. And um, we actually ran uh, for the Busabuntu Foundation. We had a we have a program called Injangmong, and it's about using creative processes to solve problems. Mm. So we worked with a hundred kids in Soweto and taught them through music, film, theater, dance, and art, how to make something. So through art, they made sculptural work that was a response to June 16. Through theater, we taught them a lot of the teachings I learned at my school in Paris, where you had to perform in a confined space, yeah. and how do you take a picture and make it into a physical movement. And there were various creative processes. Kids made documentaries about yeah. their neighborhood. It was fantastic. Um, and we spoke to one of the lecturers at Vitz, I forget his name, and he was just so insightful. The whole process was really insightful around actually what June 16 and being youth means to the youth. And I think what you're saying is valid, is that you're not seeing them on TV all the time, but the youth is very active in South Africa. Yeah, definitely. And I was in London when the Fismas Fall movement started, yeah. and I was so proud, because for me, Fismas Fall as a movement was an echo of exactly what 76 was. Yeah. It was the youth saying, we're, we're tired, you sold us out in this way, like spaces that are calling themselves universities do not function like universities, they function like private colleges. Mm. And and then you turn to government and government's like, but there's nothing I can do. <laughs> These deans don't want to lower their income. And yeah. that's really what it comes down to is that UKZN didn't have as many uprisings because UKZN is predominantly owned by the public state. So they are really a university. Mm. That's what university means as a word. If you go anywhere else in the world, University means that it's a state-owned entity. entity where you have a private ownership but a majority of it is state-supported so you can get more scholarships, mm. so you can get more easier access to students to find education. All three of us sitting at this table could go and study in Germany for free as long as we wanted as foreigners yeah. because it is now free not just for them as nationals but, but for, for anyone and you don't even need to speak German because there are institutes there that teach in English. So that's, that's why I was so proud because I'm like, yeah. And some people are like, do you really think education should be free? I'm like, yes. <laughs> education is actually a human right. It's not a privilege. You communist. <laughs> it's not a communism thing. Private education for me is not, that's a privilege. Yeah. That's why you have private schools. But to say that kids must still not have access to knowledge that empowers them, because that's what school is. That's what educational institutes are. They're giving you skill to go out into the world and survive. That's 
and health, those are human rights. Education and health are not privileges, and we've been taught that by an oppressive perspective. But, and to say I'm communist, because I think it is just like, it's a part of it, it's that response of like, and I know you were being, you say it in jest, but it's that, it's that feeling of like, something about this shouldn't be happening <laughs> you know and you're like no 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 you deserve you deserve to know yeah. as much as you can before you go out into the jungle that is the workspace yeah. so i definitely feel very passionate about the youth and i think that the youth move every nation forward and the minute the youth stands up and shows you that they can resist peacefully they can resist consistently because that's what these kids did they were there every year and then it became popular when it got to the more expensive universities yeah. but it was happening in Limpopo it was happening in Bloemfontein and Free State yeah. and then when it finally got to Joburg and Cape Town then it hit the press yeah. but these kids showed me that as a 32-year-old woman, I can look to 20-year-olds, 18-year-olds and know that they know what they deserve yeah. and they have a lower level of tolerance of <laughs> the things that have been taken away from them than we yeah. did because we're still like, oh my gosh, yes Zulega, put your fist up for not putting relaxer in your hair and wearing your afro to school. Put your fist up because it took me back to boarding school where I had to relax my hair so that I could normalize into a Western identity. Yeah. But here's this little girl at like 12 years old saying, I'm not changing my hair. Yeah. So shout out to Zulega Patel for inspiring me as a 32 year old woman to remember that young girls aren't going through that. And they're seeing that they don't need to go through that. I have to be honest, I am like painfully skeptical of awareness months of any kind. I find it like, it's like insidious. Yeah. And I feel like our government has basically promised free education just to stop people from protesting, yeah. to silence them. I don't think that there's a clear strategy or no, platform but system, or idea. It's already to, happening. Students did it at the beginning of this year. I've participated the in three. The Sorry, I had to call you out on that. Like, I mean, I wrong. don't know. I stopped following the conversation. Yeah, no, it's point, already happening. Yeah. It started this year. You just have to showcase that your family can't pay for your schooling. Yeah. And you have to constantly, like every other institute, you just have to show that you need it. And um, I know this because my cousin's daughters didn't get in. And so my mother had to try and help them at UKZN, where their mother, their, our late great aunt, their grandmother, passed away and she was chancellor at UKZN. Oh. So it was really easy for them to get in. Like they had legacy at an institute and they just had to follow the rules. But sadly, um, my nieces and nephews are not the most um, hardworking that, people. <laughs> so that was their own fault. But yeah. in response to what you're saying, your skepticism is fair. But in that regard, it's already underwear. It's already happening. But that, I mean, that is something that makes yeah. me hopeful about yeah. South Africanness of just. And young people taking action and being. And as and a society, that we, we, we deal with things and we try and deal with things optimistically and passionately, mm. and you know, and you, you kind of. We make enough noise, things will change. Yeah. And That's it's, interesting. Yeah. That Question on, on, on so so okay so the, the the fought for the education and stuff and so now let's talk about the quality of education, particularly in film school and stuff and, and the creative industries. I, I always, I mean, I'm a big advocate for education, but I, I I've been at institutions and I've worked with students a bunch of times, are uh, and and I always find that like a lot of education of the real world practical. Yeah, I don't know. I think the art world and creative world and film yeah. worlds really rely on elite circles to function. It's yeah. part of the it's part of the DNA, it's part of the whole mm -hmm. construct of the thing. And so these schools are overpriced, they're inaccessible and in South Africa that basically means that the, the really cool, really talented, popular 
like filmmakers that should be coming up, which are kids from the township who understand way more about a pop audience than I'm ever going to know, yeah. are not getting through. They, they don't make it through. They, they kind of, they're punished in film school. And well, yeah, we, we also have a very particular lens on film school because we went to a private yeah. school. Um, after is a private institute. Mm. Um, I don't Did you learn know. everything there? Did you learn like so the business very, side? No. no they not would not give you the keys to the kingdom. <laughs> They're like, here, you don't use a camera, I'm going to throw you they've, out. They've started, they've started teaching entrepreneurship in the producing, I think. But I think it's also just they didn't know. That's honestly my feeling is yes, they don't want to give us the keys to the kingdom. Always. We know this. They still haven't given us our land back. We know. <laughs> standard. But when it comes to actually, the truth is my feeling is that a lot of these people who are running the media industry yeah. have very basic level skills because they learned during apartheid and their pigmentation got them work, not their skill. And so if you go into work based on something that's not skill driven, once people come up who've learned the skill yeah. and are, are reading about European filmmakers, Latina filmmakers, like are actually interested, like you said, who are thinkers, we're now competing with a dude who happened to be Caucasian and happened to be able to pick up gear. And so that's why there's a fear response and there's no passing on of knowledge mm. from these guys because it's a case of, my feeling is a case of, you know, they don't know what else to do. So our education at AFTA was what I think our leaders knew. And there's a rumor. Ha, I don't cannot, call them leaders. These are not <laughs> I don't know what else to call them. The, I'm trying to be as PC as possible. <laughs> With the owners of the institute. Okay, so the only, there's a rumor that they started AFTA because they were being excluded within the industry. And so after became their way of creating short films that they could make go to oh. festivals and using young people. So it's like a company structure. Yeah. So and I, I got that feeling when I was at after it was like it was structured like a company because there was no strong curriculum. That was my that's my criticism of my schooling days. That when I think of Vitz kids, and that's why I think it'd be interesting for you to speak to someone who went to Vitz or yeah. Rhodes, because um, I think they had a very different structure, far more classical structure to their training. Vitz, I think, has just started introducing film, and we didn't have classical structure at all. Like, it was very much it like the a, film it industry. It was a very, like, made-up. Yeah, <laughs> it, was it was a business. Very, like, like, how like you don't get these kids to make movies? It's going to be a fly-by-night thing, yeah. but they've, they've survived, and they've and done well. Absolutely. <laughs> and they're getting more and more support. Yeah. But I think the one thing I really resent about the whole experience is just um, it had so much post-democracy like white liberalism yeah like it had this agenda that we would we weren't allowed to tell stories we had to save the nation we had to give it hope and it was just like I think they were campaigning to be seen as a, uh, a genuine tertiary institute. Because <laughs> while I was there, they were still not recognized by the educational department. <laughs> so maybe that was part of like, look at us, we are liberal free. Like, look at us white liberals. We're part of the struggle. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the slogan of the school is, in, is a Khoisan slogan. I mean, it's like, it's all quite like beautiful post-democracy yeah. stuff. Beast. You know, just like, <laughs> but I think it's, I mean, it started out earnestly. It's definitely served its function. I don't think we would be here today if it didn't yeah. exist. And other filmmakers, other they, filmmakers they definitely have, have given a lot of young kids who would have not had access to that skill, a space mm. to that skill, I mean a space to gain that skill, but like Sheetal said, it's still exclusive. Very few kids can yeah. afford 40 grand a month, and that was in 2006, I'm yeah. sure it's more now in 2018, um, for education. Yeah. and. But I mean, I taught, I taught there for a year and, and six months into the program got really frustrated because 
um, I'd had kids in my class who were not participating, um, like they wouldn't put up their hands, they wouldn't engage, they wouldn't necessarily submit things on time, and then you'd see their films, and their films were amazing, yeah. because they were shooting in Benak, they were working with crews in Benak, and you sort of bring it up to after and go like, I think some of your most talented kids are going to get lost in the process of you trying to be an academic institution enforcing English, and these kids need to be making films more than me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'm an upper middle class Indian girl, like, you know, 10 people are going to want to watch what I'm going to talk <laughs> about. But this is a really important person for you to back. And they come up with a really superficial response of like some kind of summer English school thing. So, oh, so rather than learn Isizulu, the most spoken language in the country, mm. let's continue to impose a European language on people. Like this is not an academic craft, you know what mm. I mean? I mean, you can get academic about it, but like, yeah. like film is not meant to be it's practical. Yeah. And the academic, the theory side of film is for you to understand the difference between appropriation and appreciation. If you learn how to reference well as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, as an artist, you'll never appropriate because you'll definitely give reference to the place that you got your information from because you've changed it and made it your own. You were managed to be inspired by that reference and you didn't plagiarize. Mm. And I think that's where theory is important in mm. art. Um, but yeah, 90% practical. What are you doing with, with your body, with your hands, whatever type of artist you are? We know people are coming to see something, and it's not a book. It's not your test results. Unless yeah. you're an author. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's super interesting, because, uh, I mean, I think our... The second Sorry, I just want to say also, just because we're on record, Boston is, I think, one of the more interesting institutes right now for young people yeah. who cannot afford places like After Orvitz because they have a rather integrated curriculum. Wow. Go and check it out if you're interested in film. Their film studies includes media law, it includes accounting, it's now teaching kids around business whilst they're learning how to make films. So yeah. if, if of those 10 people, one of you also wants to make a film like Dillian, uh, or you know a young person who does, yeah. um, I, w I would say start at Boston. Do you think it's education is important to, like, if you say, for example, you have access to gear and you want to shoot a film, mm. do you think going to school is important or is it just more the act of making films? I think I think being, like, as far as film is concerned, I think being, a, a, like, an in-tune, switched-on, educated person who's concerned about the world is more important than knowing how to frame a camera. I think that can be gained. I think it's a... Uh, it's a catch-22 in my opinion because one, what do you consider to be education? Like, is like your I'm education in school from and all, like, yeah. Okay, so like state institutes or tertiary education. Like after right. and all. So in that yeah. context, I think that your talent will always supersede whatever education you get oh. from whatever institute you get. However, mm. having worked on sets with people who did just pick up the camera and start a YouTube channel, you do a lot of catch-up mm. when you have been educated yeah. you have because you know how to get to something a lot quicker and the other person's still figuring it out because they are now being educated yeah. in practice, in practice. Yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that but it definitely puts you in a game and in a, in a playground where you're going to be working with people who are learning in practice too because it costs me too much to be teaching you whilst trying to film a series too um, I would rather do a, a program with you over the summer where I build you up and then you come in on an apprenticeship 
um, I, be, I believe hugely in apprenticeships as, as yeah. visible to pictures because mm. I can't now bring down the quality of all the studies yeah. that I've done because it has an agenda. There's a vision behind those models within my company. But a huge part of my company is about upliftment and it's about skills transferal and knowledge transferal. Yeah. So I don't think that you have to. Um, you do, like Sheetal says, just have to be interested and curious in the world around you and then have, I think, a strong perspective. That's I mean, look, it's, not, it's not an easy skill to, to cultivate and acquire. Because it also downplays how hard we work when we're like, you yeah. don't need the education. No, 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 and people no, no, are like, it's, I can be a filmmaker. It's very, like, very, very intensive years to leave with that skill. But, and it's, it is great, but I think what I'm trying to point to is that there's no... There's no training in terms of how do you go out and then build a career as a filmmaker. Yes. Nothing, nothing, nothing prepares you for that. I felt like my education around that came from just traveling film festivals. And you've got to like save up and sacrifice holidays yeah. to just go out and but be at festivals and understand. that's why so important to me because you and I had yeah. the, the, the privilege through our family structure to mm. go overseas mm. and seek this knowledge. I mm. was fortunate enough, you know, the National Arts Council sponsored me for my studies in France. Um, By the way, you must apply because it's, it's closing next week. Please apply. Do it. Apply. It happened mm. for me. It can happen <laughs> for you. I'm a young Zulu girl. But also people don't want you to chance. break into the film. You know, like, uh, we went to a talk yesterday with Mary Sabanda and I was like, the winter and I was just talking about how you know, the imagination is the seat of power in society and people don't really want you to break in and change. If you make a film that empowers people to want to think and be different, mm -hmm. It's it's the dangerous. Structure will not let that live. It's very dangerous, yeah. and I think I think artists who take those risks often pay very big prices. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why my point was going to be like. So nobody wants you to position. go to the festivals. No yeah. one's going to tell you exactly. go. So I'm going to tell you just exactly. go to the festivals. You'll yeah. learn more about what this industry is about. And if you can't make it to the festivals, know that we are in a space right now where we're trying to make it more accessible here at home. Like that's one of my missions. Yeah. Like Musa Buntu as a brand, as an idea, is all about making access to that kind of knowledge easier for people who yeah. are interested in it um, and knowing that maybe one day we will have the kind of funding available to take 10 kids to a festival run every year yeah. and it would be for them to learn you know you'd be a runner you'd be running around doing admin but you'd be in the festival environment and who knows three years later it would be your film showcasing yeah, that's super interesting that's like a, and yeah. also, sorry, she and I have a very strong feeling about Western uh, festivals. Do you, don't Let's work, <laughs> yeah, don't go to European festivals to try have them validate you. This would be my advice to any non-Western filmmaker. Don't go to these festivals and think that Cannes or Berlinale yeah. or Venice is there or Toronto is there to, to validate you as an artist. I mean, we need to get over this because internationalism it's a Western perspective. as a, as a, as a standard for culture yeah. is yeah. just such you know because it's like not the standard there are elements there are gems that are extraordinary in this world but the western perspective especially on africans yeah. what the west has taught to be african is not how we yeah. view ourselves as africans so when you present your films there in the african corner they're like we don't get it <laughs> and it's because they have their own idea Ideas and their own written histories about what africans are so yeah. It's a good place to learn, it's a good place to exhibit, but it's definitely not somewhere that you should hold in high regard because you can do better. Those are tools, you know, they're tools. Yeah. And I feel like people get really caught up in, there are development labs and there are all sorts of things that are attached to festivals that are about helping mm -hmm. people cultivate talent. And, and I think because we really do have a lot of scarcity issues in mm -hmm. Africa and in yep. South Africa around this industry, people want to go there and like think about 
think about it as an accolade, but in reality, great filmmakers don't go through labs. Mm -hmm. There are very few people who define culture who are like or homegrown in a lab, you know, like it's, 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 it's a bit of a, it's great for women because it gives you a little bit of extra clout to say that this lab and that lab have yeah. improved you. But at the same time, you know, my personal experience with some of them have been, if you're trying to be disruptive in your, in your thinking and in your storytelling, you don't really want colonial thinking to come in and yeah. restructure that because for you and make it safer. Like, why would you want that? No. I don't really understand it. And um, it, it does take going through the process to understand that you don't want it. Because I was yeah. so happy, and I'm, I would still go back to Khan. I'd go back wiser, mm. but I held it on high. And when I got there, I realized, no, you know what? This is a trade trade fair. And these, that's what these festivals fair, yeah. are. They are trade, trade fairs. fairs. And when, if you were taught it's from the business, be- exactly, really. I mean, if you were taught from the beginning, if we were taught it after that this is a trade yeah. fair mm. that may come with a great accolade if your work is good, mm. then you would have a different approach, a smarter approach, mm. a more confident approach, knowing that you're there to represent your work and get somebody to sign a contract but to distribute it. I do. I do have this worry that the, the, the filmmakers out of Africa who are breaking through into the international market and the festivals at the moment are kind of being curated by either really colonial or really American (laughs) capitalist sort of like you know there's there's always like it's definitely for lack of a better word there's always the white guy in the room who's sort of holding your hand and pushing you through the door which is which is concerning to me because I feel like women have a we have a a kind of a different approach our capacity to disrupt is also like we can change the power dynamics Mm. we can we can change that this this craft is like so patriarchal you know yeah. it's, it's it's very vertical it's it's the director at the top is god and everyone else is a slave it's like it's like we can come in and really shake it all up yeah. so we need to we and need what's to interesting is that make sure that we're not having having a, a, a another person like weinstein we're not having basically how do I say this without being like so? Oh, just say hey, what you mean. Yeah, you don't have you don't have like a white person who's holding your hand in this space because they're going to groom and condition a version of you that is probably not going to be as impactful. Yeah. And rightfully so, you as an artist though, as a brown person, also need to have the confidence in that room to stand for yourself. Mm. You can't put all and place all your confidence and capacity on that person if you are ever in that situation. But what I was going to say as well is that it's like, for me, that's the Western lens. But what's funny is that the patriarchy also exists within the Asian lens. Because, you know, India is the biggest film industry. Even though Hollywood hypes itself up, it just doesn't touch the numbers that India does. Which is why I don't call the Indian film industry Bollywood. Because it would suggest that the better film industry wants to be lesser. (laughs) And I don't think that's the case. but the, the patriarchy and the supremacist structures, you know, as much as I think supremacists are basic and limited and lack evolutionary coding, they've been very effective. Yeah. And they've gone from a macro to a microcosmic infiltration of our societies. So that's what I think is very important about what Shito was saying in that when women are in spaces and true feminists, who don't only happen to be women, but like if it's a woman and she's a true feminist, which for me means true equality. You know, I don't look at the suffragettes in England as a feminist movement. I look at it as a catalyst for a feminist movement because the civil rights were the first feminist movement because everybody got a vote. In the suffragette movement, it was only Caucasian women. 
And I think that's just because of the power they had mm. and what they did was important. But men are, who were not Caucasian didn't get a vote and women who were not Caucasian didn't get a vote. And that's not what feminism is to me. And so harking back to what I was trying to echo about Sheetal's point is that when feminists are in spaces that have been really oppressive and have not given people access to opportunity, they shift it. They disrupt it and they create new worlds and they create new opportunity and they create a, the potential for us three sitting here to be pioneers. Although what, 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 what is always kind of like funny to me is, is you know, this is the level of intensity of conversation that we probably have every time we hear a cup and have a cup yeah. of coffee. <laughs> this is a general and, conversation And I'm thinking about like, like the guys who are at home, it's like, yeah, no, I'm man, not allowed to make a superhero movie. Like, like men have this shit so much easier. They just sit around and they're like, yeah, let's, let's make the next Matrix, you know, or some like awesome. other bullshit. No one will make another Matrix. <laughs> Yeah, some things are just easier. I call it generational wealth. And people yeah. think that it's just in money. No, but I mean, like, you're a dude. There's something you've There's inherited. Something made in there. Absolutely, because yeah. patriarchy said it, made yeah. it so, you know. Obama, Obama is an example of, like, Jan's patriarchy and being like, oh, the non-Caucasians are getting upset in America. Let's bring it up. They didn't get upset. They were like, we're never letting you guys do that shit ever again. And that's how Donald got in. Yeah, but it's interesting because someone like uh, Barack Obama was. That makes me a little race. afraid for my life. Wait, makes Obama. me a little afraid for my life. Of, like I come out making this like very anti-patriarchal. I think you have to be so smart to dress it up as entertainment and make it pleasurable and like feed people the opium, yeah. you know, in a way that's they don't realize that they are being disrupted. You think, you think you're in more danger than people like um, Trevor Noah who are calling Donald Trump out every day? It's no, like, I think, I think Trevor's in such a fascinating space because I look at someone like M.I.A.'s like storyline yeah. and you're going, you know, she really was... M.I.A. is a musician, by the way, dope-ass woman. Check yeah, out. she's like a Sri Lankan Tamil activist, um, rapper and... Dope, dope rapper. Dope, 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 dope. Was, was really like hard done by the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. A Western yeah. establishment. Can we please be specific? Because thing is we also have this tendency in our dialogue to continue to speak towards the western industry as if it is the industry yeah like we we are meeting mia in africa for the first time Mm. when she came with this documentary and she hasn't toured africa and hasn't had a campaign for african or the latin community or the asian community and i think that maybe if she'd had somebody on her team going look america's not giving you a four-year visa and you can't come in go sell your stuff in China, go sell it in South Africa, go to Japan, go to Brazil. I think if she'd had maybe somebody who was more disruptive and diverse, um, she would have seen that actually the future is in the BRICS chain. These are the people who are going to be making money in the next 20 to 50 years because they're going to be competing with the World Bank as a cluster. So I think that that insight is not available to everyone. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a bit like... Okay, I mean, there are part, parts of us who feel a bit betrayed that she went so hard forward to American culture and gave her life to being an activist within it. But then, you know, you think about someone like Tremonoa and you kind of get it. Like, sometimes people, have, these people have to be in that space. Yeah. Yeah, to change it. Yeah. And the thing is, Trevor Noah being there, Barack Obama becoming um, president, um, is all is all very American. It speaks very much to the structure of the American racial issues they have. Because 
I've heard jokes, and this is not in my perspective because I don't buy into colorism, but like often people would be like, yeah, you know, if you're half and half, you know, we're, we're easing into it because there's still a bit of us represented from like a, a white yeah. perspective. And that because Trevor is half Caucasian, half African, yeah. Barack Obama was half Caucasian, half African, the Caucasian community is a li the white liberals, as we call them. They're a bit more comfortable because they still feel like they're a part of it, which I think is a fair feeling for anyone to yeah. want to feel represented. And we are the majority in Africa. So for us, it's like, we don't need a mix. <laughs> we know what we are and our pigmentation has always been diverse. Come, you know, go from Cairo to South Africa yeah. and you'll, you'll see what I mean. And um, that is a part of why someone like Trevor Noah is the face of The Daily Show and not someone who looks like Lupita Nyong'o has married into the British royal family. There's certain levels in which I think the West's evolution and consciousness um, around diversity and inclusion and less supremacist behaviors has to be on their terms. That's what I'm seeing. They're doing it on Just their half terms. Just half-assed, basically. <laughs> well, half-assed for us because we have an African perspective, but for them, they are predominantly Caucasian. So is it wrong for them to want to see themselves in the transformation of their heritage? And I'm not giving that as my opinion, but I'm just saying, like, I'm provoking that idea. Is that it's not wrong. I just don't really care. It's yeah, there we go. <laughs> You're like, why is this on my timeline like, every struggles. day? I have my own struggles. I have my own struggles. Yeah, yeah. Um. That's interesting. Uh, so let's talk about uh, with creativeness things. I've always tried to build a community around creativity and people, and, mm. and particularly young Africans and stuff. We might uh, need another drink. Yeah. Sorry. The coffee is shit here. So I know. I figured that was your conclusion because <laughs> you're you're not drinking it. It's, it's flat. I don't know what that's going on. But anyway, uh, around community, what are you particularly being in Johannesburg? I always find Johannesburg is an interesting place to be creative and stuff. What what are you guys views in Johannesburg currently as a it's because right now every black person literally is living wherever they are to move to Johannesburg mm. to come to Johannesburg. Mm. That's like the this is like basically the city of gold for creative. This is the New York of mm. creativity and stuff. What are you guys views of that? I mean, you guys being here and so. Were you guys both born uh, here? I was, I was born here. Um, since I was three. I have tried to leave many times unsuccessfully. Like, I love Johannesburg. I think it reinvents itself, and it's always going through like this hardcore, like rise and fall, destruct cycle. Yeah. And every time you're like, I'm done with it. I'm done with it. I'm done with it. And then it's like, oh my god, but it's innovating again. <laughs> why, why, why? And, and just... I'm growing more than I would grow anywhere else in this city. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that. What you're asking is an urban small town model that has existed since the dawn of time. I think our species will always go to the place with the greatest wealth for survival. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Josie is the economic hub for, I want to say Africa, but it might sound arrogant to cities like Nairobi and Accra and Dakar, but it is in terms of what I see in our cities and the number of African nationals who come here. Um, to, to make something and can make something of themselves and the people who come from our smaller towns in South Africa outside of just the creative industry you know if you're a weird perhaps put if you're a weird woman like myself like a weird Zulu girl with ocean blue hair you're not really gonna find a space for yourself to breathe in a small town like Mkungundo which is where I was born what I find there is solidity and peace and calm and when I need to write I go back home and I'm in my mountain and that's the value that space has for me but I'm a disruptor I'm a competitive person and I'm I'm ambitious so I need to be in a city like that yeah. and I think that applies to every industry for any ambitious person being in a slow-moving town 
yeah, is mean, not going to help you. I think Durban is also very exciting right yes. now. Durban is new. It feels like South Africa. It feels like Johannesburg and Melville like 15 years ago because hipsterism hasn't really infiltrated. Like it's not about capitalism. To kill it. People don't do cool things on Instagram and they just do them. It's yeah. like it's, 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 it's like why are you why are you taking a photo of yourself surfing, dude? Just surf. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's very earnest and it's very cool. And I would encourage people to go out. And Shout date out to KZN. I was born at Tegwini. Hey. <laughs> Where is Cape Town? No, I don't know if you can say Cape Town. Like let's not speak about it because yeah, we're like, only let's, negative. Let's not give it. Let's not give it the, yeah, we're giving it too much time, know? and the, we all know time. that we think it's a problematic space. <laughs> and I've met a lot of Cape Townians who do get in their feelings when we only speak negatively of it. But in I truth, just I think that the thing that bothers me is that it's still trying to present itself as, as an art, progressive, as an artistic yeah. hub, yeah. and it's not. But when you're out of touch with culture, yeah. because there's an ebony ceiling in that, like that, it's yeah. not a safe space yeah. Yeah. at all. Then and you, it's still very elitist what kind of in its art. Is it? yeah. Yeah. It's so it's art. uninspiring. And that's what I'm trying to say. Is like it's in pretty. general, the, 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 it's Africa. It's standard. Um, <laughs> we do not have the most glowing perspective on that space for true and valid reasons. But just to always give the other side of the coin, we're not saying After that the space is After a six-year drought, devoid. I think the spiritual work will have been done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we just got shade, 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 shade here. I'm trying to bring in some like peace and togetherness and saying that we know that there are good people there trying to, to be a part of the movement. I'm just saying, no, y'all, I mean, don't give I, up. I think I'm saying it because I, I tried to move down and then when I came back to Johannesburg, I just, it was one of those things where... You were back in Africa. I just I feel like Jobik has grit, and, yeah. and, and and you have to be up for that. You yeah, know? you have to be up for the fact that this is not a city that's going to We walk to on gold, coat. baby. Literally. We are walking on gold. <laughs> yeah. This is the golden urban forest. That's what I call this space that I love so much. And there is literally our trees calm yeah. us, and our gold our gold keeps us going because Joburg is there's definitely a contingency that come here to and buy into the fake lifestyle of the city like every city have you that is not a big thing. no but this city sorry my boy was going to be like this city's environment outside of that fakeness of any city we're all in agreement on that um is the fact that it's still african you know when i've seen very angry caucasian women shouting at uh black staff and rewards these women are just sitting there like waiting for her to finish and like talking to themselves like you know they're very aware of like we're gonna keep it real with you sister we don't care if you own a million dollar yeah. house down the road you treat us like people see us and treat us like people and that's the grit that i think we love about our city is that we don't tolerate that bs we're not saying it doesn't happen we're not but saying prejudice yeah. and conflict doesn't mm. happen in our city mm. but there's an attitude about our city where it's just like Especially we won't you, deal with that rubbish when you're kind of cultivating a level of feminism as an artist that's really important in order for you to actually go out and, and do stuff and, and, and pioneer i felt that when i was in cape town like the quality of conversations that i have in the support network of women who are doing things mm. in joburg and our capacity to talk about, you know, very frankly about how whiteness might be limiting you or how like patriarchy might be limiting mm -hmm. you and how you can like you inspire each other and you give each other solace. Yeah. Whereas when you're in Cape Town, you're kind of, because you can be, it can be really hard to find those yeah, conversations. Yeah, because so. most Caucasians in our country identify through whiteness. They don't even separate their Caucasianness from whiteness because they don't understand that whiteness is a system and that they introduced the word white and black to Africans with the Western invasion and that they were trapped by that word before they even came to Africa. I learned the other day that India is just colloquial slang for indigenous. 
Indian. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Indian has no meaning. It has no meaning whatsoever. Ah, ah the Western invasion yeah, keeps man. giving and giving and so giving. Much. But yeah, I think that's necessary knowledge that we shouldn't have to learn. That's, that, that's I think that's the painful mm. part about oh, I think true. about colonization and mm. stuff. You know, mm. which, is, which is why I, I always fight with South Africans around using the word apartheid. I think when you use the word apartheid, you're limiting, you're forgetting a very key component that led to the apartheid phase, which is colonization. Yeah, the Brits did it to the Dutch first. You know, they were like, let's practice apartheid on you and blame you for all of it. I I always, I don't know, I always find it fascinating that in Zimbabwe, I think that's why we're more, I guess, violent towards change. Not not, not change when it comes to white people, but not comes to black, which is odd. Mm. But anyway, could go and stay there forever. (laughs) But the funny part is I was like, in South Africa, the discussion is apartheid never colonization which is a very key construct to yeah. the entire country yeah but somehow it's always erased and all this stuff well the brits are famous for being rewriting <coughs> history i mean churchill is a god and churchill lent to the end of trade in many indian communities yeah um supported cecil Rhodes. that's his churchill yeah but english people love him and that's because he saved them in a time of need yeah but then they proceeded to make him this hero without fault and now what I think that Western culture is dealing with is us brown people writing our own books and being like, actually, no, this was this, this was guy. Kind of, I think it's part of film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Film is art has that power across the board. Music, film, theater, people who are now given platforms to express <coughs> themselves and being like, listen, that agenda that you're dealing with has been skewed. And yeah. there's a yeah. reason the British didn't want to be seen as a part of what we live with now, this post-colonial reality. is because if you are not better the devil, you know, right? So if your devil is just the Afrikaner identity, which is, you know, an amalgamation of German, Dutch, French, Huguenot peoples, um, the Brits are seen as like, well, we just came and we decided to stop fighting. <laughs> so then what can you do if people are seeing you as passive? You can steal more, yeah. you can create economies that exploit people more, and you'll be seen as passive and really with the people in the Commonwealth. So you're killing people with kindness. You're truly killing people with kindness and not in a positive way. You're smiling while you're stabbing yeah, someone. And so that's why I think it's been left out of the conversation. It's been a very strategic rewriting of histories, a language and an education and creating a system where they can literally just be in the corridors of the horrors that happened on our continent. But we see you. <laughs> we know. <laughs> no, I think you said it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's talk about, uh, yeah. you mentioned something interesting about spaces uh, and communities where you can have frank discussions and uh, mm. what, like, you know, it's always funny, I, I struggle to find a space to kind of hang out at here in in, uh, in Johannesburg yeah. where I can meet other creatives and safely have come. Brownfontein is okay, but then it's overdone uh, and, and there's too much cool. Where, where do you think is missing in terms of, I mean, you guys are filmmakers, so you yes. you primarily don't need necessarily a space to work from, but mm. but maybe you need a space to kind of showcase and create community and stuff. What do you think is missing in Johannesburg in terms of? Johannesburg is mysterious in that sense, you know, yeah. and like it, it's, it's, it's been a good thing on the one hand, like I think about a space like Kitchener's and I think about the fact that most of us have spent five years hanging out there and <laughs> I like, left sooner. The cool, the cool <laughs> thing about it is, is, is the close friendships I have with people that I would spend time with in Kitchener's have all gone on to do amazing things, yeah. you know, and so it was definitely like a hub of and people were incubating their, their like hustle in a way. Um, but Joburg is very bizarre in that it doesn't prioritize space. Like, I have you know, a theory around that. We're starting to see little pop 
like yeah. pops of gentrification everywhere. We're yeah. all excited, but I think the source no, no hubs. For yeah, creativity. no, not yet. Yeah. I think my theory, and it's really an uneducated one. It's an empirical observation mm. one. Is that I think because of all the displacement mm. and the creation of Soweto and the creation of places like District Six, I think that displacement really shifted the way in with like how we engage as communities and so creating spaces where we can come together was dangerous you'd get killed you know you might get shot if you came together and congregated together so i think that there has to be a conscious shift amongst ourselves where we're not just congregating at taxi ranks anymore we're not just congregating at shisanyamas yeah. we are going back to what our ancestors were doing before they were being displaced from their homes sitting out putting chairs out in the yard and going to squares like the europeans do going and sitting by a canal and pulling out a drink i think a huge part of Joburg's hubs will come once we truthfully take ownership of our streets again from that debauchery that you said you have an aversion to in the city from the violence um, I, I don't know i think monopoly capital is just like there's too many shopping malls exactly we <laughs> yeah. have the most malls in south africa it's for like... a country our size and like that's ridiculous i hate the mall entrepreneur i hate them mm. because they kill and community who's business. making money of these things that one person upgrading all of them that now. one person someone there's some re- and we're oh, creating because no you're not you're creating renters yeah and you're killing community you're killing the capacity to for people to create markets and be out in the street and have Kailicha have a market, Kukuleto has a market, Soweto has a market, Tembisa has a market and that is you see that all over. I saw it in London, I saw it in Paris. I think we just need to start moving towards pop-up is a good place to start and then hub I think is the next level because you need to remind people that they can come together and be in safe spaces together. Yeah. That's my theory, and I don't know. Do you have any other problems where we're here to solve them? <laughs> we are solving world That's hunger them. next week. Yeah, can, can I get the memo, please? I'll be next podcast, please. Uh. <laughs> I mean, you guys share some really interesting insights and stuff. I think, lastly, what advice do you have for other young creators on the continent? And yeah. You first, Miss McGann. Um, well, I feel like I'm still learning the lessons that I'd like to put forward, but I, I do feel like in South Africa, at times I'm finding myself to be a little bit disappointed. You know, I think that we, we have a very high value on social justice as individuals in this country, and it's something that we must never lose sight of. And it's something that you have to, whenever you make a leap forward, you have to think about how to pay it back, mm. and you have to keep accountable on that level. And I think. When you see people in the creative industry, everyone just wants to make it big. And that's a really Western idea. Yeah. It's a really capitalist idea, fame, fortune. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 really dysfunctional. It's all about ego. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly dysfunctional idea if it's not held to a standard of, well, what is it giving back? Mm. And I'm always impressed when people like Trevor go off and do something and they're, they're, you can see the South Africanness of there's no way I'm going to make it that big and not bring a whole bunch of people with me. And I would just like to see more of that. I think that people who are very privileged don't seem to, they, they do better and they don't seem to have the same crisis of conscience mm. about helping others. I call it privilege without responsibility. Yeah. And I find that very hard. I, I, like, There are certain struggles that I've had as a woman coming into a space where 
you know, people people intimidate you intellectually. That is that is the currency of this yeah. space. They'll make you feel stupid. They'll try and cut you off. Mm. And I would love for there to be a time where women don't experience that. In 10 years, I hope that women don't have to experience that. Anyone, women and men. Yeah. Like, truly, Trying. everyone must be safe and in a space where they can play and be free. So, I mean, that's not really, those are not really lessons, it's just thoughts and ideas and things yeah. that are preoccupying me right now. Um, of just going, like, I'm enjoying making leaps, but I also want other people to benefit from those leaps. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, I always try to avoid giving advice, like you, I prefer conversations, because mm. I think that we are all learning from each other, and like Sheetal said, it's an ongoing process. Mm. What I know today may become not and void next month in relation to how I want to affect my community, but I definitely 100% agree with Sheetal. Um, my whole company structure, you know, I opened my foundation on the same day I opened my production company because the processes and models designed in my foundation inform the processes of my yeah. production and the sets that I want to have and the type of, you know, I thank you Putti, just got another beverage. It's um, not coffee by the way. I don't drink coffee, I don't drink it's anything with juice. caffeine. Um, caffeine is not my friend, but... Um, it's healthy. For some. <laughs> so yeah, no, so I designed, you know, working with young people for a reason. If yeah. I bring a sound record this onto my set and they're rude to kids or the kids become nervous around a certain yeah. person on set that tells me who that person is wow. and I don't like assholes on my set and so there is a link and a connectivity in my processes that allows for me to do what I can with the small amount of resources I have yeah. now um, which I hope in the long run will lend to schools you know summer schools with creative processes across the African continent I want to be able to have kids in Kenya Ghana Malawi do a summer program with us and then go and start making short films on a weekly basis and know that that's their voice that can yeah. reach anyone um, and again this comes back to broadband and governments investing in allowing a democratic communication platform um, so I think that for any Africans who are trying to be disruptive, who are trying to be disruptive media people. Um, my advice, I am a super geek. I, I think knowledge is empowering. You don't have to go to a university, you don't have to go to the UK like I did, but read articles, find information about this listen industry, this listen to this podcast, um, listen to my podcast that I've been forced to create over the past year. Um, I'm going to have to sit around and do some research because I'm a geek, but the, the intention and the good thing with listening to people like Dillian and ourselves is we're here and we want you to thrive yeah. and we genuinely are like if knowledge is all you're asking we'll sit down and give it to you in some way where you know that just because you don't have 60 grand for a degree doesn't mean you can't learn doesn't mean you can't be sitting there being like I will be your apprentice I don't know anything but I learn quick I'm respectful I'm professional and I will be there yeah. and the four years you spend on a set with Busabundu Pictures or with Sheetal's company could be that education and the confidence you need to build a career. And so don't don't run around and register companies and build logos and yes, like form relationships. Yes. And, you know, Learn first. The most important thing is to actually have partnerships in, in a mm -hmm. creative industry. It's it's the biggest thing is I feel like coming up with people. It's really difficult to do this on your own. Don't do it alone. It'll get lonely, it'll be harder. And that was going to be my last point and yeah. sort of shout out to other Africans is that 
I think there's been a huge misconception about South Africans from our media, especially after the attacks that happened in our city centre that are still being called xenophobic attacks, but South Africans were hurt, South Africans were also in hospital. Um, it was what happens when you have economic crises and pressure, the areas in your community where people are suffering the most will have the highest level of violence. And um, I just want to say that we did come from a colonial space, we are one of the youngest independent spaces in Africa, but we feel as upset for having been left out of the conversation. I would have much rather learned about the Rwandan genocide than the Western wars. And we are open for business and we want to hang out with you, we want to eat with you, we want to make fashion with you. From the very tip of Egypt down to the very tip of South Africa, we want to hang out and we want to play with you. And we really are not interested in the African narrative that the Western invasion is trying and has been trying to tell about us. We've always been stronger, we've got a rich heritage. Let's just start sharing it on our terms together. We're stronger together. Yeah, I mean, I think the only, the only thing that I'm sort of having to terms with at the moment is like, yeah, okay, we're all anti-capitalist, anti-patriarchy, all of this stuff. And well, not all of us. Some of us are into that capitalism. <laughs> you, some of us are swimming well, in it. We like to. And they're African brown people, it. girl. You know, they're like, I found the oil <laughs> and I'm gonna sell it to the monopoly structure. I'm fine with that. I like fancy. Are things. you? <laughs> so you spent the past green hours calling out patriarchy and capitalism, and now you're like, did you say you'll put me on a yacht? I like quality <laughs> things, but they must be made. Equitably, um, you know, I'd have the same attitude towards my own films, but I think what I'm trying to say is that we're living in an age where people are calling out everything left, right, and center, and we're forgetting about love. And love is still probably the most powerful thing. Focus on something that moves you and find a way to use that. That's my last thought. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, I did not mention Kanye West in this podcast, so I just thought I'd put it out there. Anyway, and then. His new album is Lackluster. <laughs> I'm a Yeezy fan. What? Yeah, that's the next podcast, our feelings on Yeezy. Bipolar is a real thing, guys. No, I, I, I think it's one of the most brilliant albums before that in pain. I'm in pain 24-7 and the album really is like... Wow. You liked it? I found uh, 808s and Heartbreak far more in tune with his pain, no, but I, I, think this is, I expected this is, more. I think this is as, as more as, as raw as it gets. Lyrically, maybe, Opioids and liposuction, man, that shit yeah, is like... Yeah, I think the, the lyrical content takes us to that place, but on a sonic level, and he's experiment with sound and it, I've heard him do it before. That's what's let me down. No, true. Is that it, the it, sound it does, of yeah, the album is not yeah. of all these ideas yes. he had before. It doesn't and I really expected have more. Sonic. I expect exactly the sonic expression is not as disruptive as I thought it would be because he did go through opioids, he did go through liposuction. Mm. And what happened when 808s came out, I was like, you heartbreak. It makes your, your creative genius go up, my brother. And it's selfish as an audience to want artists to go through pains, give us their work. But mm. I suppose when I got the sonic experience, balanced it with the lyrical content, I didn't feel as moved by his sonic. I, I think it's going to be interesting when, when the full uh, 28 songs come out. Well, I didn't realize it was going to be released. No, there's seven it's from his Odyssey. own album. Mm. So there's seven from his own album. Listen to these fans. <laughs> Maybe let's a, save this for the next one, guys. And then there's seven from the Kids Who Ghost, and then there's seven from Nas, and All then right. there's seven from Tiana Taylor. Oh, and they just launched Nas's one now in so Queensbridge. Today, yeah, it's, it's going to be launching today, I think. 
So I think it's going to be interesting when you when you try see the whole journey. See the whole journey. <laughs> okay, because I'll wait for it. So do you think there's there's intention in his recent meltdown, or do you think he's just being honest as an artist and making art through his meltdown? He's or? always honest and it's always intentional. I think it's, I think it's <laughs> honest, and what I like about it is that so I mean when you're very honest, you're misunderstood. People want Steve Jobs 24/7. We kind of all be Steve Jobs and be calculated with our ideas and, and be presentational and being all the calculated time. Is and I'm more interested in people being honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I feel like calculated. there's intention. We just like the only thing I think he struggles with people to articulate. And I think there's not enough people around him. I think the people that used to be there before to help him ground himself, mm-hmm. not, not ground himself, but, mm-hmm. but help him articulate ideas better are uh, off to their own journeys. You know, the Virgils, mm-hmm. the, the guys that are way no, more No, Virgil's learned. still very much in his life. Not, I not think as much as no, he, he used is, to be. But it's more fashion. And I yeah, think but the I feel like is, on the more creative journey now is more Kardashian than... And I think people say that <laughs> I mean, that's what like, I was trying you know, to stop because I know I, I'm going to hold people, back here my thoughts. I think, I think this is another podcast because the truth is like I think people will immediately talk... Look talk, after I'm, Kanye! Kanye I'm a Kardashian fan. After. I'm a Kardashian fan. <laughs> and I think that it's too easy to blame the woman for the man's shortcomings, number one. But two, Kanye has always been somebody who's... out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna call that out, but the thing it's is, as well. <laughs> but the thing is, as well, guys, you just uh, Kanye has never looked for anyone to tell him how to speak. Just because when he came up with Jigga and Damon Dash, there was a way he spoke then. Yeah. And then when he was dating Amber Rose, there was a way he spoke then. I don't think whoever he's married to or whoever's surrounded by will ever affect. It's Kanye. He. It's the Kanye show, and. I feel like, I'm sure Kanye went, I mean, I think his wife had a meltdown when he said what he said about slavery being a choice. Because of course the first thing the black community is going to say is, it's because you married that white woman. <laughs> Even Snoop said it on his part, he was like, yeah. you need to surround yourself with some black women that are going to give you the right kind of advice. Like, why is it Kim's fault? Why is it his wife's fault that this man sat on TMZ and said some controversial stuff? He's an individual and he's a free mind. And you'll never take that away from him. So I do think this is another podcast because I do find it very interesting how the first group of an all-female show has been lambasted as untalented, unskilled for the past 10 years in the Western media. But before them, the Kardashians. Before the Kardashians, there was no show on television that was predominantly female that exploited media practices and use the docu-series to become millionaires no one ever speaks to yeah. about them in that way I'm not saying I want big booty culture or yeah. I want plastic surgery culture what I want is for women to stop being called sluts yeah. stop being called oh you don't really do anything when the when they're running empires and just because you don't understand what type of a media empire they're running saying that they don't do anything doesn't make you look anything but sour and so now he then goes and marries this African-American who's an activist and really outspoken and they bring up their Armenian heritage and nobody wants to see that because we're seeing it from a Western lens. Yeah. And why is that? Why are we bashing the only show on television that's run for 10 years that stars only women who don't also look blonde and blue-eyed? Before then, a lot of the shows like Insecure and seeing different types of women on television wasn't happening. And I'm not giving full credit to them for that. But I'm saying seeing brunetted women with curvaceous bodies who loved their curvaceous bodies, wanted more of the curvaceous body, appropriated in some ways and offended people. That is a conversation that's not had about these women because it is easier to constantly bring bring down a woman who's doing something different in a disruptive Western space. 
See, this podcast is lit, damn. <laughs> yeah, man. We're ending the note with Kanye West. <laughs> you escalated when you brought in the creative genius. I was like, ah, oh, that's not a crescendo. That's a rise. This is going to be a series. By the way, you should go listen to. Uh, you should go look at Mary Sabanda's exhibition, uh, Crescendo of Ecstasy. And, and to go look, I think I'm going to go after this because I'm scared. Of, I want to watch it with my wife. My wife loves Mary Sabanda, so yeah, she, she's in Cape Town. It's so really nice worth it. <laughs> It's yeah, it's, it's worth it. Beautiful. It's a wonderful experience. We, we maybe we'll talk about it next. We were all yeah. over, I don't think Mary wants to see us for a while. <laughs> we were fangirling hard. Like we love you, Mary. <laughs> thank you guys. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, and yeah, listen to it. Watch their work, please. Don't support the work. Just watch the work and pay for it. Whatever it's due. I hate support. Pay your dues. Uh, and then yeah, we'll see you on the next podcast. Maybe next year. I don't know. After no, this one, we don't I think. need support. We yeah. need fans. <laughs> yeah, I don't like. I don't like when come to me and say, so, I, "I support you." No, I don't want to support. <laughs> Pay for whatever I'm selling. Listen to whatever I'm. I'm and that'll preaching. translate to support. Yes, and that's enough. Yeah. Thank you guys and Thanks take care. There was no coffee fun. in this conversation, so anyway, bye bye. You don't need coffee. <laughs> no, I'm I'm an advocate for African coffee. I think coffee is very very important. But this is also called coffee with Dillian, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the whole idea. And yeah, you're gonna have shit coffee. We know you need any coffee with Dillian, so it's fine. Thank you guys. Take care. Bye. <laughs> and he doesn't edit his podcast.